Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Lifetime Value. I'm your host, Ritik. Today, I'm extremely excited to have Tony Caldwell, our first mystery guest who does FPNA for Warner Brothers. Tony has been friend for a while, and we met each other in college. And today, he's here to shine a light on movie finance and how studios value movies and why A-list actors get paid the way they do. We also will look at how technology is changing the entertainment world, be it better for worse. And even though perhaps you might be thinking that there's no connection between the movie world and fintech, we will definitely find out that there's actually a lot more overlap than one might think. So without further ado, please welcome Tony. Hello, hello, Riddick. Thanks for having me on. Hey, Tony, thanks for taking time out and speaking with me today. How are you? I'm doing all right. Yeah. How about yourself? Good, good. I just wanted to take some time to introduce you to our listeners, you know, explain what you've been doing, how we how we met. Yeah, man, it's been almost eight years since Stereo Matter. Yep. <laughs> Where you taught me to DJ in the basement of your school. <laughs> That's true. So Tony and I met each other when uh, Tony was an exchange student to my university and we were both part of the DJing club called Stereo Meta, hashtag shout out. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and, and Tony has been uh, a very good friend since. Even though we both were students of finance, Tony decided to pursue his dream of working in movies. And also he has a blossoming acting career. So Tony, why don't you go ahead and tell us more about that? Yeah, fingers crossed. I, mean, I just go to, I really just go to school at this point. I'm a student. We'll see about the acting career. Mm -hmm. But uh, right now, you know, working at Warner Brothers, mm -hmm. the best studio in my opinion, <laughs> just because they take, they take risks. They take, uh -huh. they take risks on artists. That's what matters. Yeah. And please explain your actual role uh, I'm a, an analyst in the financial planning and analysis department, uh, specifically in participations, which is the long way of saying that we look at how much the talent makes on the back end of things. Mm -hmm. Okay. So just right off the bat, what does back end mean? So when like Vinny Chase, everybody's yes. favorite entourage character does yes. Aquaman, he doesn't just get paid $2 million in salary. He gets, usually that, that money is used as what's called an advance against his participation in the movie, which means equity. Okay. And that's set up by contractual terms based on different revenues and expenses and how those are flowed in. And then Vinny Chase may get something like, you know, 10% of the modified adjusted gross receipts. Interesting. So let's maybe get a bit of a crash course in movies from your perspective. Perhaps you can start by using, you know, the entourage analogy. What is the process of making a movie? Like where do the actors come in? Where do the studios come in? Where do the agencies come in? Like Ari Gold, for example. And how are movies valued? For our listeners who are unfamiliar with entourage, it's kind of like Sex in the City for men please feel free to check it out it's a it's a great show so yeah tony 
perhaps you can give us like a crash course in how movies are made. Yeah, sure. So when it comes to independent movies, it usually starts with an idea and a script, right? But let's focus on the studios because that's a little more complex. Okay. So it, it, what, what it starts with is acquiring IP. So they acquire a book. They require, they acquire an article from the New York Times. They acquire the life rights to an individual. And then what they do is they set about sending out notices to different writers and directors saying, hey, we want you to write us a treatment for this and because we want to make it into a movie unless you know uh vinnie chases what's the guy's name who plays his director in the in the series the crazy guy billy walsh billy walsh yeah let's say billy walsh comes to them with an original idea that's something totally different okay but in this scenario paramount comes to vinnie or to two different writers and says like we've got this idea for we got we just acquired story about a guy who saved a bunch of children from an alligator and we want to make it into a movie. Mm-hmm. So they pitch it around to different writers, get their treatments and their ideas of how to make it into a movie. They pick the best idea. And then they go to Vinny Chase's agent, Ari Gold. and okay. say, Hey, we think, you know, Vinny would be great for this role and let's work out a deal for him. So they sign up Vinny and they're like, we'll pay him, you know, $6 million advance against, uh, a 8.5% MAGA participation. And these are the terms, you know, home entertainment at 20% and, you know, box office rentals, which um, for the, for the listeners is not the box office that you see in the headlines, but rather Mm -hmm. the box office minus the distribution, uh, minus all the, the cost that the theater incurs to actually show the movie and okay. what you have left over from that. Okay. And you know, all the other revenues that come into come in from a movie, which we could go and talk about for a whole episode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then they mark that against expenses like guild residuals, prints and advertising, you know, cost to actually print the billboards and mm-hmm. show it on TV ads, you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of other expenses that go along with making a movie. And then you get, you know, uh, distribution fees that the studio charges because that's the main way the studio is going to ensure that they make something off of the film. Mm-hmm. And since most studios nowadays are producers and distributors, they've charged a fee for their distribution portion. And then there's two other ways the studios make money. Interest. So they charge interest against a uh, picture. And okay. that's simple interest. So like a okay. flat 10%. Okay. And then overhead, which is a percent of the negative cost, which is the production cost of the picture for use of their facilities. And that can range anywhere from like 10% to 15% of the cost. Okay. You take all those expenses out, you get Vinny Chase's operating okay. profit. Okay. And then he gets 8.5% of that. I actually kind of skirted around your question there. <laughs> but after they make that deal with Vinny, yeah, they then go and shop it to their theatrical partners like AMC, and they say, mm-hmm. you know, we really like to get this on the books for this particular timeline. And while they're doing that, they're finding directors, they're finding uh, cinematographers, and all the other cast and crew to fill out the remaining spots on mm-hmm. the picture. Mm-hmm. And then to value it, what they do is they say, well, we made this movie, you know, like three years ago. That was really similar 
and Vinny was in it. And so, you know, the box office then was like $100 million uh, domestically. So we projected that the box office is going to be around the same this time around. And then every other revenue source is based on a percentage of box office. So whatever that movie three years ago did, Mm -hmm. they say like, oh, okay, so home video was 5% of the box office. Then we predict home video is going to be 5% of the box office this time too. Understood. Now, that was a lot of information and thank you for that. So if I had to sort of summarize, there is obviously the projected revenues minus the actually very real costs like using the studio, distribution, interest, etc. Which brings me to the next question, especially within your capacity. How do you normally value the movie in a way that really makes it viable for the studios to actually go like, hey, you know what? We predict that maybe the movie is going to make $100 million. We need to set a budget of, let's say, I don't know, 20 to $30 million to make the movie so that eventually we'll end up with a $70 million profit. How do they do that? That's actually where my team comes into play. Okay. And to preface this, I actually work on the TV side more. The, the processes are very uh, similar. So okay. we do something called ultimates where we project the revenues out, the revenue and expenses out 10 years. And then okay. you come up with like a lump sum net present value of what the movie will make. Okay. So 10 years is like the industry standard, I'm guessing. Correct. Yeah. And what this, what this I'm guessing is sort of in the finance world or, or the fintech world, perhaps is like the comparables, right? So uh, if let's say yeah. I am a fintech company that does, that's a neobank or something, right? I will put my company's valuation very similar to perhaps an established player in the market so that my valuation is in line with the industry. Yes. And, and that's very similar. You know, every, every movie is its own company in a lot of ways. So you treat it very similar when you're valuing it. Interesting. Now, the next like, question I had was in terms of predicting these things, right? A lot of times the probability of success can be approximated by using, you know, uh, if I hire like Mark Wahlberg in the movie, I'm guaranteed X level of success. If I have X, like Christopher Nolan as my director, I have X level of success. But even then, you know, there, there are instances where it goes terribly wrong. Why, why does that happen? Number one, like how do they not predict flops? Number one. And number two, does that end up being your responsibility if let's say you tell a particular studio head or something that, hey, in 10 years, Vinny Chase's Aquaman is going to make a billion dollars, but then eventually ends up making $10 million. What happens then? <laughs> yeah, we always do prediction. Like we, we change our valuation quarter, every quarter. So okay. we have to put out, you know, because it's a public company, all these companies are public I'm in some capacity or they roll up to a public company. Every quarter, we have to make predictions about our liabilities. And so how much are we going to owe people into the future? And you know, that's my department. But from a revenue perspective, it's the same thing. It's like, how much do we expect to make going forward? So what's our, like, you know, our uh, accounts receivable in some way? 
if, yeah. if you were to do the, the notes, it's all there. So it's not really like one person's responsibility at a studio level. Okay. As far as like flops go, there is someone who greenlights it. And if you have too many flops, you're going to get fired. <laughs> okay. You know, if you're the head of theatrical production at Paramount you're, and, you, and you greenlight a movie with Mark Wahlberg and it just doesn't do well, then yeah. Mark's not going to take a hit because he's, he's an actor. Okay. The director may take a hit because they're supposed to be the captain of the ship. But yeah. if, you know, if there's too much trust, if the movie goes way over budget, if uh, the script is just horrible and you, and they don't evaluate it at, from that level, and that's usually where the problem is, if the script's just not good, yeah. then, you know, it's, that's going to be a flop. You know, Clint Eastwood also said a lot of his movies weren't marketed well, which okay. is why he changed studios mid-career. So marketing has a lot to do with it too. If you don't get the word out there soon enough mm -hmm. or, you know, re get your reach out far enough, then not enough people are going to go watch it because a timeline, you know, a window for a theatrical release is really small when you think about it, it's like mm -hmm. six weeks. And one other thing that um, perhaps you and I have talked about before is that a lot of times the revenues are projected using literally the number of seats that are occupied at a theater at one time and then projecting that out to a country level and eventually even a global level. So it starts yeah. really with each, with the expected revenue from each single customer. Could you perhaps expand on that? Yeah, there's a report that's, that is released every year by the MPAA okay. called Theatrical Market Statistics. And what they go through is they say, they give out like a high level, um, top down overview of the global box office in billions of dollars by region. And then they go into like average ticket price from a, you know, a microeconomic perspective, like how much <laughs> are tickets costing on average? Yeah. And then, you know, they even split out sometimes like IMAX tickets versus regular theatrical tickets. And mm -hmm. if you wanted to look at it that way, like let's say you wanted to produce a movie and you were really interested in how much do you think you could make and you want to present it to your investors in a way that they could possibly understand, you could yeah. go in and say, you know, I've got uh, Vinny Chase starring in my movie, this little independent movie that I'm making. Yeah. And I think if we can get it into a thousand theaters or even 500 theaters, then you might look at it from a, a bottom up perspective of like, Oh, each ticket's going to cost 10 bucks on average. I think we could sell half the theaters out. So like 50% capacity. Yeah. And you know, that's going to roll up to like $50 million or something. Interesting. So see the way I'm thinking about it, right. Is, perhaps a studio is like a highly funded startup, right? And each movie is like a vertical or a potential product line that they have. And using an individual consumer, they project out the unit economics of each movie, see its profitability, and then decide to go with it and then put in the cash to make it happen. And oh, once totally. it's sort of yeah. lifetime value is done, then they, they, they have like their final P&L from that. And then they exit from that particular 
project once it's done or it keeps going and keeps giving them money, becoming a cash cow of sorts. Which brings me to the other side of the equation. You know, where do studios get all this cash from? How do they, beyond their previous successes and then gaining money from that, you know, if they need to raise money for a high budget movie like Avengers or something, how do they get that money and who do they normally go to? Like, what are the VC equivalents for movies, for example? Really good question. I think you hit the nail on the head about the whole lifetime value proposition and and uh, what that entails for a studio. They usually go to co-producers and co-financiers. So, okay, a big one in in Hollywood is like Rat Pack Dune, which is okay. Brett Ratner's company, and then there there are a bunch of these little places that raise capital from it's like a private equity firm specifically for motion pictures and television. And so, you know, sometimes a studio sees a film is really risky and, you know, they don't, they don't necessarily see themselves like being able to sell merchandise or make it into a franchise or any of those Mm -hmm. like normal activities. So they don't see any ancillary, a lot of ancillary revenue sources bring it forward a long time, or maybe they just don't want to take a big risk and spend $250 million on a movie. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So they'll bring in these partners and they'll say, you know, you co-finance this with us. And obviously their risk goes down because they're not putting so much money into it. It's like a, it's a leverage, you know, leverage situation. Understood. Now I want to change tracks a bit here. And I wanted to ask about things like Netflix, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, how is technology changing the entertainment industry from your perspective? I mean, you already hit the main change earlier when you said they're looking at all the analytics and making choices on what to green light and what not to green light. That's like, you know, it's a known fact now yeah. in the public eye. It's like Netflix is watching what we watch yeah. and then making decisions on how to make movies, even to the level of like, should this have more violence or less violence? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure that that stuff goes on, but it, from like a, from like a industry shaping perspective, I think you're going to see a shift from traditional TV to streaming services. I'm not even sure that we'll have traditional TV in like 10 or 15 years. Wow. I think it could go away completely because you know, that generation that buys it starts going away. Like, I don't know if your parents have cut the cord, but mine have yeah. already. And yeah. those consumers are dying off. So <laughs> yeah. if there's no one there to buy it, you know, I don't, I don't know a lot of people our age that buy TV anymore. So, you know, maybe in the future, you'll see the kind of packaging that we saw at the TV level where like, you know, we'll have like a direct TV come in and say, you want Hulu, HBO mm-hmm. Max, Amazon, and Netflix all in one package and you only pay yeah. 50 bucks. Yeah. And you, you know where the real challenge is going to lay? And this is like, for your listeners and for anyone who works in, in financial tech too, who wants to like make a move into entertainment, like yeah. how are we going to change the theatrical process? Cause that definitely has to change. Like as okay. it exists right now, you know, who knows if theaters are going to be a lot around as they stand right mm-hmm. now in like 20 mm-hmm. years. And I think it's really an integral part of human culture. I don't think people mm-hmm. are going to stop going to the movies as they are, yeah. but anyone who can make that shift in like, do something fundamentally different like Netflix did for yeah. TV in the theatrical space is going to make a lot of money. Interesting. 
Now, perhaps we can move on to the section that I like to call payback period, where the guest gets to ask me any question and I have to answer it. Would you like to take a shot at it? (laughs) (laughs) What show are you watching right now that you really like and why? It's a very good question. You know, when I'm feeling a bit brain dead after a long day, I love watching Indian matchmaking on Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) That show show is, is just the culmination of Indian reality television, in my opinion. (laughs) <laughs> it has all the elements of the equation, like somebody weird. And at the same time, because given my Indian uh, upbringing and uh, the whole prevalence of arranged marriages, it has, uh, it, it's something that hits close to home, but at the same time, it's, it, it's something that I can enjoy. Now, if it's something that I'm willing to take a bit more seriously, uh, I love this HBO series called Rome. came out a while back. And before Game of Thrones, this was the most expensive TV show ever shot. And the most interesting wow. thing about it for me is that it was, at least in terms of the, the costume, the way the city was, the sort of dialogue and, and some level of chronological events is as accurate as possible. So it was really interesting to sort of be able to do a bit of time traveling and really lived through how Rome used to be about 2000 plus years ago. And I'm, I'm fascinated by that type of history. So uh, it was a very interesting way to understand that, hey, there's a lot of things that perhaps, you know, I can't understand, but there's a lot of things that are happening right now. You know, the whole differences in the Senate, the politics, the charismatic leader, the the one causing a lot of problems, et cetera. It, there's still a lot of it happening to this day. And it's very interesting, you know, and I kind of like that saying that Mark Twain had, which was, you know, history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And, and I love <laughs> that it's kind of happening again all the time, you know? Yeah. Now to wrap up, you know, Tony, do you have any career advice, any books people can listen to? Or, or read up on to understand more on your industry? I just want to say, you know, first that you hit a lot of the points about what makes the cinema so great, like the, the wardrobe and the locations and the production design, so important in, in a lot of ways. And I'll have to take, check that show out. Um, <laughs> you know, I wonder how much Indian matchmaking is paying you to gotta pay him more come on guys <laughs> uh, but uh yeah for career advice i mean the thing about this industry is it's really easy to get into what you would think of as a client facing role you know mm-hmm. the traditional back office roles in entertainment finance are not so far off from the client facing in the sense of like you talk to the producers and the, and the major players in the industry and help strategize on their deals. Um, you can make that transition really easily. I've seen people do it from FP&A into Stratton Planning mm-hmm. in my department here at Warner Brothers. 
recently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even like further back office, like working on overhead or studio facilities, like totally possible. Really, really, I think much easier than a traditional investment bank. Mm-hmm. And the thing about the entertainment industry is it's really forgiving. So you could have not, and it's also really welcoming. So you could have gone to the best school and you'll get far and you'll you have a good career. And you could have gone to, you know, a mid-level school and not had a bunch of work experience and you could still get in. You can still get your foot in the door, mm-hmm. work hard and get your way up. So, you know, for anybody out there, entertainment, it does pay much less than any other industry. But uh, if you like the rewarding aspect of making something that's not just more money or like widgets, you're mm-hmm. making motion pictures that inspire people, mm-hmm. then this would be a good career path for you. And uh, there's a lot of movement available within the industry. Mm-hmm. And I remember you recommended a couple of books to me for delving deeper into this industry. Please, would you share them with the listeners as well? Oh, yeah, sure. A uh, movie business book gives you a good high level overview of like the entire movie uh, and studio process. And then industry, entertainment industry economics by Harold Vogel. Okay. Just like, I think he spent like 20 years at Merrill Lynch as an entertainment industry analyst. So he has a lot of information in there and really good resource. It's like a textbook almost, but skim through it, learn some stuff. Interesting. Thank you so much again, Tony, for taking time out. This was so much fun as always. And we hope to have you again to talk a lot more once uh, you are the next Vinny Chase. Oh, thanks, man. Hopefully it happens. And uh, (laughs) hey, guys, don't forget to like and subscribe at the bottom. (laughs) Thanks so much again, Tony. All right, Rick. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.